Christ be magnified indeed. Yeah. Well, I want to invite you to open your Bibles. And uh, this is always important, but it feels especially important today uh, just because of the nature of the text we're covering and, and kind of where this message lands uh, in the course of three weeks that we've uh, been back in Ephesians. So uh, I'd love for you to have your text right in front of you, whether it's with your phone or your paper Bible, whatever. Um, and then we've given you some notes as well. Uh, I, I want to say just before we get into the text that um, I've just I've been personally confronted these last couple of weeks just with the significance of the church as it's you know spelled out in this passage. I mean, if you just asked me, I'm a pastor, so it's like so you know what are the key passages on the church? I would go well, duh. Like, you got to go to Ephesians 4. You know what I'm saying? But, man, getting down into that and thinking about the things that Jeff and I have talked about these last couple of weeks, it's like, like deep conviction. This right here, this is a local expression of the body of Jesus Christ, the light of the world in a you know, surrounded by darkness. This is his plan. There isn't another plan. There's not another alternative. The church, this is it. And when everything is said and done, Kevin said it. He died. He rose again. He ascended and he's coming back. And when he comes back, guess who he's coming back for? The church. We have so much to do until that day. So that, that's, uh, that's what grabbed me. This last Wednesday, Jeff's going to talk about this as well, but we had our foundations class, and there were 150 of us in here talking about the church, what it is, why it exists, who we are, what we're supposed to be about. And it was just deeply encouraging to me that uh, I'm so grateful decades ago that the Lord called me to not only be his son, but to be uh, serving his church in this kind of way. And it is a joy, and I am uh, I'm just impassioned once again to be about what we're going to talk about today. So, Ephesians 4. Um, my passage today is verses 13 through 16, but it's really important that we see these verses in their larger context of the first 16 verses of chapter 4. Because it's a flow of thought. In fact, from 11 to 16, it's one sentence, as we've come across a few times in the book of Ephesians. So um, I want to take us through some initial ideas very quickly, but that will lead us into what we're going to talk about Today, So going all the way back to the beginning, and, and actually let's go into chapters 1 through 3. There was this big idea, I shared it a couple of weeks ago, but we as Christians have been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Chapter 1, verse 3. Therefore, that's how Paul starts chapter 4. Therefore, walk worthy. Remember that? 
Live like you're blessed. Mind the gap. Remember, there's this this gap that exists in all of our lives, and it's between how we actually live and this blessed life that we've been given. There's a gap there, and we need to know what it is and ask God by his grace to address that in us. Nevertheless, therefore, in light of this blessing you've been given, walk worthy. And then walking worthy, verse 3 in chapter 4, involves eagerly maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So, if our hearts are going to be aligned with the heart of God for His church, we have to have the unity of the church in the highest of priorities, eagerly maintaining, preserving, guarding the unity that we have with each other spiritually. So that, that's a spiritual reality that he wants, its, he wants its way to make its way into everyday life. We unify around seven essential realities, all modified by the word one, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. That represents the distinctives of Christianity, which are inflexible. We can't jettison any one of them and claim to still profess biblical Christianity. The fact that in every one of these cases, there is one of them obviously means there isn't another. So really important that when we think of unity, we don't just think about getting along and being nice to each other, although that's wonderful, but it's unifying around truth, absolute truth, objective truth. Truth that is true regardless of what you or I think about it. That's what we unify around. Then beginning in verse 7, we're told that Jesus enables us to walk in unity by gifting us spiritually. So verse 7, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Verse 8, When Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, I'm paraphrasing, he gave gifts to men. Then in verse 11, we're told that Jesus gave, I'm going to just kind of lump all of them together, gifted leaders to equip gifted saints for the work of ministry, which is building up the body of Christ, which is the church. One quick word, we just we got some questions back around the whole uh, that list of five offices, which also point to giftings, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. And Jeff mentioned that the office of the apostle and the prophet no longer exists because it served a very explicit, unrepeatable purpose. 
What we want to make sure we understand is that just because the office no longer exists doesn't mean that the gifting has ceased. So just as an example, Barnabas is called an apostle with Paul in the book of Acts. So obviously, there is a gifting related to apostleship that related to Barnabas, who was not one of the 12. He's not called one of the 12 apostles of Christ. But apostle just simply means a sent one, and it really emphasizes a pioneering kind of gifting, someone who goes into new territory and establishes a beachhead for God's kingdom. So I, I, I really like the idea of just making sure when we come to Ephesians 4 and we look at Christ giving gifts, he gave them initially through gifted persons who were established and continue to be established to equip the gifted saints for the work of ministry. Is that good? So let me paraphrase what we've covered so far. Jesus assigns gifted leaders to local churches for the purpose of preparing every Christ follower. Please do not miss that. Every Christ follower for personal, skilled servant work. That's what you get to do. And you may have never heard that in your life. And if not, welcome to the party. <laughs> Great opportunities for you in the body of Christ. Leaders in the church do not exist to do the work of ministry for the people. Leaders exist to help each believer personally fulfill their part of the ministry. So you have a part. And, and that's where Paul is trying to, to raise our awareness. I did have a thought this week when it comes to the idea of equipping. I wonder how many people choose a church based upon its effectiveness in equipping. Like, have you ever heard anybody go, you know, I go to church A, B, or C, because you know what? Those guys over there, they are going to help me be as effective in my calling to ministry as I could possibly be. Have you ever heard anybody say that? It's typically like, dude, their worship, oh my gosh. It is killer. Man, they're teaching, they're preaching. This knocks my socks off. Have you ever seen their facilities? I mean, they're just beautiful. Their programs, man, they are just off the chain. It's amazing. I think Paul would say the most important reason Aside from the fact that God's word is front and center and Jesus Christ is glorified. So we're assuming that. I think he would say the number one reason you ought to choose a church is because you believe that church is going to help you be as effective for God's kingdom as you could possibly be. Otherwise, go somewhere else. Find a place where they can train you to effectively fulfill 
your mission. So I've got five questions I'm going to ask you throughout this message, and here's number one. Are you eager to be equipped? Do you think about that? You kind of wonder, what would it look like if I was really trained, as trained as I could be, to do everything that God called me to do? The ultimate goal of the equipping ministry of leaders in the church is not just to produce more ministry, although you would be equipped for the work of ministry. The goal is actually something far more important. Ministry is a means to maturity. That's what Paul and that's what Christ is going after. Certainly, we want to be effective in ministry, but the more effective we are in ministry, the more we grow as God intended. So maturity, not just ministry, is the ultimate goal of our equipping. Now, when you think about how churches measure their success, I wonder what you would say. Again, they might look at their facilities. They might look at their bank account. They might look at their attendance, how many people are in the seats. And it's not as if those metrics are irrelevant. It's just they're not the priority because are there not megachurches in our country or anywhere around the world that are full of people who are spiritually dead or shallow? Yes, there are, I promise you. So the size of the ministry can't be the key indicator for success. The best indicator, the key indicator of success in a church is the maturity of its people. How far they have gone down the road in their walk with Christ bearing fruit in all that God's called them to do. So that's where Paul goes. Now we're kind of getting to the passage that I have for today in verse 13, but it's the measure of maturity. So what does Paul have in mind when he thinks about that phrase, maturity in Christ? What, what does he have in mind? Well, let's look at verse 13, and we're going to pick up Basically, the controlling verb for this whole section of 11 to 16, back in verse 11, it said, Jesus gave, right? We just saw that. And there's an idea here that he didn't just, just gave. That's probably bad grammar. Uh, he gave and will continue to give. Now, pick up in verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So, Jesus gave, he's going to continue giving until we all attain three things. He identifies three things here. And these are complementary to one another. They're also progressive. So, first of all, until we all attain, and that picture of attaining, think about like when you're going on a trip and you have a destination, it's arriving at that destination. That's what Paul has in mind here. So Christ is going to keep on giving to the church 
until they arrive at this idea of unity of the faith, and that points back to the one faith in verse 5, and unity of the knowledge of God, the one Lord, back in verse 5. So he's going to keep on giving until we really unify around those two things. Secondly, he's going to keep on giving until we attain to mature manhood. Now, if I have a baby up here, right, we'd look at that baby and we go, it's immature. It's just obvious. It's a little harder to measure maturity in a person, right? But there's ways that we can go about that. Uh, Look at the fruit of the Spirit. Look at how one relates to the others around them. Look about the priorities of their life. All of those things can begin to give us an idea of how mature that person is. But the idea here Paul is talking about is actually much more corporate than individual. Now, a church... I I think this is safe to say. I don't know that it can be packed with immature people and be in a mature church. Like every church has to mature corporately, and that does require each of us to mature individually. But he's talking here about Jesus Christ giving gifted leaders to the church and giving gifts to the saints equipping them so that they can grow into maturity as a body. That's an important factor. We we think so individually uh, in North America, I think about our Christianity. Paul is very corporate in his mindset. But lastly, then, we get a, a bit of a qualifier, but it's the third aspect here, attaining to the measure of Christ's full stature. So just think about all that Jesus Christ is. That is the measure of maturity. Or we could say it this way. The measure of our maturity is our conformity to Christ or Christ-likeness. Now, none of us are going to arrive at perfect Christ-likeness in this life, right? But that is what we're always striving after, and that is what Jesus is committed to enabling through his gifting. He's enabling us to grow more and more and more like him. In fact, that's the intention here. Uh, Let me read Romans 8, 28, and 29. We typically just quote 28, but we got to get 29 in there. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Now, think about this. We typically think good. I got a lot of ideas about what good means. I think what it means to God is Christ-likeness. That's what he's working out, and here's why I think that. Let's keep moving. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be what? Conformed to the image of his son. That's his plan. That means he can use literally anything and everything in your life to make you more like Jesus. And the more you and I are like Jesus, the more we are everything that God ever wanted us to be. So that's the aim 
that is the purpose for Christ gifting the way he did, I, I would kind of summarize it all this way. As each believer serves with the gifts Jesus has given them, the body as a whole grows progressively unified in faith and knowledge and becomes more spiritually mature, which is more like Jesus Christ in all of his fullness. That is the measure of maturity. So, our second question. Are you aiming for Christ-likeness? Not perfectly. I know that doesn't necessarily occupy your mind every second of every day. But, but does that generally set your course? Is that your destination that you're going after? That, Christ-likeness, that is God's destination for you. Now, those individuals and churches that make maturity their aim, they experience what we might call a coming of age in Christ, which Paul describes in this next section using a contrast between children and adults. And the minute I saw that and thought of that, it took me back to essentially my passage from boyhood to manhood. This was a long time ago, 30-some-odd years ago. Um, but it's a little surprising. I don't know when you might expect that to happen. Uh, just read an interesting statistic this week that adolescence now extends from age 10 to 24. I'm just trying to make sense of that. A 24-year-old adolescent. I'll just leave that with you. But here's the deal. I was 24, living in Little Rock, Arkansas, newly married, first job, full of myself, and I was as immature as a 10-year-old, spiritually speaking. I, I had no idea what it meant to be a man. No idea what it meant to be a husband. Kimberly and I might have even been pregnant when my kind of defining moment came along, but certainly had no idea about being a dad. I, I describe it in men's fraternity, and that was the turning point for me. Uh, have you guys ever heard of life's little instruction book? Right? So I, this is how I envisioned myself. I moved to Little Rock, got my first job, married my wife, and we've got a kid on the way, and I've got my life's little instruction book, and I open it up to figure out what I'm supposed to do, and it's blank. So I, all I got is whatever I just decided to come up with, and it's not good. Ask Kimberly. <laughs> so men's fraternity comes along, and there are these men who have been walking with God for decades, and God is so kind to put those men in my life to say, here's what a man is. Here's a definition for authentic manhood. Here's a code of conduct that you can follow, and it will lead you to fruitful places. 
Here is a way of life that will be life-giving for you and for everybody around you that's related to you. It changed my life. Kimberly would say there was probably more transformation in that little section of life there maybe than ever. And I can't tell you how comforting it was. Again, not to know everything and not to do everything perfectly, but just to know what to do. I didn't have to wander anymore. That, that is the beauty of a coming of age. And again, I was 24. I'm sure Kimberly would have appreciated if that transition had come years earlier. But we just went with it. Extended adolescence, spiritually speaking, is a huge threat to the church. We are meant to grow out of our childishness. And and this is what Paul is saying here. He's saying these precious gifts and equipping that God has made available to us, if we will take advantage of this, then there are two beautiful results. We know that in verse 14 by the words, so that. So remember, Christ gave. He's going to continue to give until we attain Christ-like maturity. So that. Here's the first result. So that we may no longer be children. How about that? Tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Now, we know children, we were children, but certainly now, they're gullible, they're naive, they're intimidated, they're vulnerable. Proverbs tell us they're foolish. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. Paul describes them tossed to and fro by waves and carried about. That word carried about is like whirled around violently. Imagine a storm, a hurricane. And a child is one that just gets whipped around and thrown all over the place. They're not anchored to anything. They're not tethered. That's what a child is like in this metaphor. And the same is true of ill-equipped adults. You can be a 50-year-old spiritual adolescent. And you can be tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every form of doctrine. I mean, think about, think about all of the things that are pulling at you today and all the places that it comes from. Could be your workplace, could be the shows that you watch, could be the, the platforms that you uh, peruse. Paul highlights not just incidental stuff that just sort of comes out of nowhere and nobody saw it coming. It's like sinister, malicious deception. We've already talked about the fact that we have an enemy. 
that is after us. He wants to take you and I down. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And it is malicious. It's twisted doctrine that is rooted in humanism and relativism and universalism, which all, all of which is basically saying there is no such thing as absolute truth. Whatever you think is great for you, and it's going to end you up in the same place as everybody else. So don't worry about it. That's twisted. Theological scams intended to play on people's ignorance and insecurity. I mean, think about prosperity gospel, health and wealth, name it, claim it. That's rubbish. It's not biblical. But if you don't know your Bible, then how would you ever see it? You would be like a child tossed to and fro, whipped violently around, spiritually speaking, into places that are lifeless. That's what Paul is trying to guard against here. 2 Peter 2, 1 through 3, there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. We've got to do this in a measured way, but we have got to pay attention. We need desperately to be discerning about what we are believing. James says... If anyone lacks wisdom, don't just sit down and think about it for a while. Don't peruse your best ideas. If you lack wisdom, he says, ask of God, who gives generously to everyone who asks. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts, listen here is like the wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind, just like a child. Doctrine matters. Truth matters. Scripture is our only safeguard against deception. That's why we love the book. Because it protects us. It guards our hearts. And men and women who embrace the equipping that God gives them, they are stable and discerning. Third question, are you ready to grow up? And perhaps you have been growing. And so the question there is, are you committed to continue growing? Jesus gave and will continue giving until we all attain Christ-like maturity so that, first of all, we might not live like children, but secondly, so that we might grow up in every way into Christ. Look at verse 15. Rather, so he's contrasting this with what he said about children, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, 
when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I will tell you um, from a translating perspective, so this was written in Greek originally, so when you're reading it in English, you're reading somebody's translation, their best effort to put English words that correlate with the Greek words, okay? This is an incredibly complicated construction in Greek. So there's no wonder there's a little bit of variance when you read a few different translations. I actually um, pulled up three of these. In the ESV, it sounds more like an exhortation. So specifically, it said, we are to grow up in every way. That's an exhortation. But in uh, the CSB, I'm trying to see this as best I can. It's more like an appeal. Let us grow up in every way. And then in the New English translation, it says, we will in all things grow up. So those are three different ways of handling that, that idea there. It makes the most sense to me to read this as an explanation of the result of God's gifting in contrast to what he said about the children. So as I read it earlier, um, Jesus gave and will continue giving until we all attain to Christ-like maturity so that the result, we won't be like children, but we will grow up in every way into Christ. So those are the two parallel ideas there. Christ is metaphorically described as the head of the body. He's simply reminding us that he is the one from whom provision, protection, guidance, and enablement is received. And it doesn't come from anywhere else. It comes from him. Paul writes a similar idea in Colossians 2.19. He cautioned that church against not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Now, notice how Paul tells us that growth into Christ takes place. This is really important. Three phrases. Speaking the truth in love. When each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, I'm not minimizing the other parts of those verses there. I'm just saying if we're following Paul's idea, that's what he's saying. Speaking the truth in love, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's the idea there. That phrase, speaking the truth in love, it was so interesting to hear how different people handled that. And um, in context, it literally, the phrase is, truthing in love. So speaking is, is a way of talking about what it means to truth in love. But the idea is probably bigger than that. It's literally everything you do in word and deed you do it in love. Speaking is one such way. Now, when we hear speaking the truth in love, and I use this all the time, and I, I think it's fine, but I'm like, if I got to have a hard conversation with somebody, 
I want to speak the truth in love, right? That's, and we get it from this phrase right here. And I do think that applies. But more importantly than anything, we just got done hearing about deception, false teachers. So he's wanting us to truth one another, unity in the faith, right, around this, this belief system that we have. We need to truth one another around that in love, caring for one another in a beautiful, beautiful way. This is essential to church-wide growth in love. That's how it happens. So another question, are you willing to let truth and love dictate how you live? There's all kinds of things that prompt us to do what we do and not do what we don't do. Do you have love and truth as your guide for navigating life and relating to the people around you? Now, the kicker, and we'll finish with this, is right in the middle. When each part is working properly. When each part is working properly. So given the larger context... And where we started with Jesus giving gifts and equippers, right? Working properly must mean working according to how one is gifted. And he says each one. So the assumption is, as we've already said, everyone has a gift, which means everyone has a part to play. And now we're learning that if you don't play your part... We suffer. It's not just you. It's not just your own mission that might be somehow deficient. It literally means, think about a human body. That's the metaphor he's using. Think about if I lose an arm. Okay, I can still breathe. I can still walk. I've got another good arm I can use. But I am limited, aren't I? And if I could have it, wouldn't I want that arm back? So in a church full of gifted people, when you're not using your gifts, we all suffer a limitation. A good friend of mine mentioned three essentials to effectively exercising a spiritual gift. First of all, you got to name it you got to know what it is. And we've done some extensive training around here about spiritual gifting. So you can get that if you want it. But secondly, you got to own it. And that's kind of a scary part, you know, saying, I, I think I'm gifted this way. You might be wrong, but it's okay. You won't know until you get out there and give it a try. And if for some reason that isn't your gift, then... You keep on trying. You'll find it. The Lord wants you to find your gifting because he wants it to build up the body of Christ. So you got to name it, you got to own it, and then you got to steward it. Like that's your assignment. That's what God gave you to do for the good of this church and of the mission. So summarize it all this way. When each gifted saint is effectively exercising the gift or gifts 
Christ gave them in truth and love, the church grows spiritually into a mature, loving community. Last question. Are you willing to put your gifts to work? And we want to help you. There are equippers in this church that would love nothing more than to help you name your gift, own your gift, and steward your gift for the glory of God and the good of his people. Take a moment. Ask the question, Lord, what do you want me to take away from this passage And look back at these questions. Are you eager to be equipped? Are you aiming for Christ-likeness? Are you ready to grow up? Are you willing to let truth and love dictate how you live? And are you willing to put your gifts to work? Prayerfully ask the Lord to give you some direction in response to those questions. grateful. I'm grateful that our lives mean more than existing for 60, 70 years and then dying and rotting in the grave, but you create us, uh, then you call us to yourself, you gift us by your grace, and then you grow us and equip us into the image of Christ, and as you do that, you use us to help others grow into the image of Christ. It is a great transcendent purpose for our lives. And so this morning as we contemplate, 
the last few weeks and weeks to come, unity in the church and, and the body of Christ growing in maturity. Lord, help us zero in on the first question money asks. Are you eager to be equipped? Press upon us this passion and eagerness to be equipped for the kingdom of God, to serve it in the way that you have gifted us. Help us to do that uh, in a great way here at Fellowship. Uh, we love you, and we ask that in Christ's name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.